Hi, Guy Kilty here, and welcome to another episode of Creative Forces. In this episode, I speak to Julianne Ponan. She's not yet turned 30, but her creative nature range of health foods is already stocked in the UK's biggest supermarket. She's won a bunch of business awards along the way for the brand that she's created. She's also secured investment on the BBC's Dragon's Den before actually turning that investment down. She'd tell us all about that, about that experience of being in the den and her fears about going into the den. She also talks about her anaphylaxis, uh, this allergy to nuts that she's had from a very young age, which has informed a lot of what she does now. And she also talks about the rule she always follows when presented with an opportunity. So we're speaking the day after International Women's Day. Um, a day that you've been uh, involved in, heavily involved in all sorts of events. Just tell me a bit about the events you've been involved in and why you think International Women's Day is so important. Yes, so um, International Women's Day is incredible, but I also think that they need to have the International Men's Day as well so that it's sort of we're fighting for equality. So I'm all, I'm all for that. But, um, yeah, it's been incredible to see such um, amazing women uh, coming up in their field and I've done a lot of talks around the country so uh, yesterday I was part of the FSB 100 women campaign which was amazing as they were doing this campaign for press for change getting as much high profile women out there trying to inspire the next generation um, and then there was the inspire event which I also uh, spoke at for biz girls network where they have a quite a large network of women who are from startups all the way up to um, big businesses and then I just told my story of how I overcame certain things and it wasn't always just to do with business it was to do with personal and life changes as well. What were some what are some of the things that you've talked about in those talks then? So for example um, I suffered from pancreatitis when I was nine years old so um, they were told uh, well the, the doctor said I only had four hours left to live as no child had had it before um, and luckily how, how, I survived. What, was that, what is that then, pancreatitis? What? Pancreatitis. So basically it's normally when your pancreas has a hole or it secretes uh, poisonous, uh, because it normally processes the poison in your body um, when you eat things. So basically all that had leaked out around the rest of my organs, but they, could, they never found the cause why, and I did have it again when I was um, 17, 18, but they did say I wasn't going to survive it then either, but luckily I did. Um, so yeah. So that must have been what? How old were you then? Uh, the first time I had it, I was nine. Wow. So that was that a lengthy period in hospital at that point? Yeah, I was out uh, for about a year. Um, so I had to go to hospital school, and it it wasn't the greatest of times. Christmas in hospital hmm. isn't the best. But um, it was it was great to be around other kids as well because what it. It's the same with like a business. When you're in a situation, it's the people around you that sort of bring you back up. What were some of the other challenges that you talked about in your talks? Um, so I also suffered from pneumonia when I first started the business. Which um, so I was running the business in the first year from um, from the hospital, which was interesting, with no members of staff. Um, and then from there, it was sort of the challenges of scaling up. Um, I got the business back into profit because it was in £56,000 losses. So within 18 months, I got it back to profit. But it was more sort of just ticking over, not growing like um, to where I wanted it to be. 
So I looked for investment, um, but got turned down by literally everyone at that point, which wasn't the greatest. And so how long were you out with pneumonia for? Uh, pneumonia wasn't too bad, actually. It was about four months, four or five months. Okay, so you had, is it pancreatitis, is that right? Yes, pancreatitis. Pancreatitis and then pneumonia. Yes. <laughs> these, are, these are racking up. And with, what were the other, some of the other challenges that you talked about? Um, the allergies on why I really started creative, creative nature, really. Um, okay. I suffer from anaphylaxis. Yeah, so this is the anaphylaxis, the, the uh, um, allergy to nuts. And this is a big part of why you started your business. Is it? So just tell me about the anaphylaxis and, and when that first became uh, a thing for you and how that's affected what you do now. With the anaphylaxis, I actually don't remember when I first had it. I can only go by what my parents said. So um, they said I was in kindergarten when I had the first attack. Um, and it was to um, a product that had nuts in when they gave us um, lunch. So I collapsed on the floor, apparently. And uh, that's when they figured out I did have anaphylaxis. At that point, um, I... I obviously was rushed to hospital and they they managed to um, uh, help me breathe again. But with that, they also did a lot of other tests and I found out that I was allergic to chickpeas, lentils, sesame, um, lots of perfumes as well, which isn't the easiest of things. Um, but yeah, a lot of it's airborne, which doesn't help me on things like planes. So I decided I couldn't find anything out there to eat because my parents constantly had to make things fresh for me. Um, and snacking on the go would, would prove very, very difficult. So I created snack bars that would cater for people like me, but not just people like me, because I don't suffer from a gluten intolerance, for example. Um, but I wanted to make a bar that catered for everyone. So how did the anaphylaxis affect you, your life when you were a kid, when you were growing up at school? How did that, you know, what was that like? I mean, for me personally, I think it's easier to have a anaphylaxis from when you're very young and grow up with it than it would be to have it when you're older um, and then having lived without having it and then having it, it will be very, very difficult. The things that bothered me is, for example, I couldn't sit with other people for lunch. I'd have to sit on, my, uh, on another table. That would annoy me a lot because they would still allow peanut butter sandwiches in school. So I wanted to sit with my friends, but unfortunately couldn't sit with them. Um, then we moved to pack lunch, which obviously your parents have to always do for you. Um, and then other things like birthday parties. My dad was always very much, you need to go for it. Like, you can't let this stop um, living your life, really. But my mum was very sceptical and she was like, no, I don't want any allergies. So I would rather you not go. So it sort of affected my social life in a way there, I would say. And so what, was, um, what were you really interested in when you were at school? What were the things that got you excited when you were, you know, at primary and then at secondary school? I really loved dance, to be honest. It's completely different to what I'm doing now. Hmm. But um, I really enjoyed tap, modern ballet, jazz. I did all of those, um, which was fantastic. But after the second lot of pancreatitis, I wasn't allowed to do strenuous ex exercise. So, um, unfortunately, I had to give a lot of that up and I couldn't take it on to uni. Was that something at one stage that you would have liked to have become your career? 
I would have loved to be if, if I could have been on Broadway or something like that that would have been a dream and it would have been amazing um, not my parents dream because my mum didn't want she said a dancer only has life till 26 so um, not not her plan but yes I would have loved to and what else were you interested in then at school so dance was a big thing what what else were the big things or the subjects that really got you going I was good at numbers, so um, maths was always a strong point. Uh, physics was quite quite good, um, but I didn't. I, I I enjoyed them, but I didn't love them. So I excelled in a lot a lot of those things. But yeah, I would say I'd say maths, physics, business studies, so which helped me to where I am now today. And so when that you were told that you couldn't do the the dance anymore, what was that? A, was that then a period where you really had to rethink? what you were planning to do with the rest of your life or how did that sort of pan out then? Not really because I was still quite young so I knew um, so I was 17 at the time so I I was still sort of deciding what I wanted to do Um, and I was obviously was doing dance but it wasn't a definite that I was going to do that Um, but yeah um, in the end what I, I looked at was what I was good at um, and it was obviously business studies, uh, which I took forward to college and then uh, with English literature as well. And then I went to university and did uh, finance with investment management. So, yeah, took the took the numbers all the way. And was setting up your own business something in your mind from an early age or did that come later? Well, there were lots of little things along the way. So, for example, when I was um, very young, I used to when your parents get you to do things like for example when they have friends around I used to get them to pay me to get a drink for them (laughs) and just little things Um, and my dad always said to me you always want to make money you always want to do something and I said yeah I I always have that's just the way it is university we got we tried to sell ice cream and got shut down by the university and some of the clubs so yeah throughout my journey I think I've like set up little things and then stopped it, set up little things and stopped it again. Um, but yeah, it's been really good. Were your parents entrepreneurial? Yes, uh, my father is uh, an entrepreneur. He owns um, restaurants, garages, property. Uh, he has his finger in lots of different pies. And do you think that inspired you, seeing him? I mean, was your mum involved too? She was uh, sometimes. Um, she she was very high up in her job. She um, was in accounting, so it was a bit different uh, for her. Um, but my dad mainly, I think he he taught us you build everything from the ground up. And when basically the the year I was born, he started the business his business, and he took he took it um, from literally from scratch. Um, but yeah, we were in the business from very, very young. So for example, he used to get me to process the invoices. I learned how to do a VAT return, all of these little things that really school just doesn't teach you. Uh, I wish it did, but it, it doesn't. So at least I learned that and was able to then implement that when I, when I actually was in creative nature. So how old were you when he was getting you to do the VAT returns? Um, so I would have been 15, 14, 15. And was that something that you were happy to do or did he kind of force you to do it? Um, he forced me to come to the garage. I remember that. <laughs> um, he was like, no, you're going to learn to change a spark plug and all of this. And I used to absolutely hate it, to be honest. But then I found that I was good at the paperwork side. So 
I enjoyed that because I was getting paid and um, I was good at it and it could, could do it really, really quickly. So I enjoyed that side. It wasn't the best. I'd rather go out with my friends, I must admit, but <laughs> it, was, it was still fun. Do you feel grateful to him now that he forced you to do that? A hundred percent. I mean, the, worth, the work ethic that I have and that my team have come from that and come from my mum with the education side as well. Without that, I don't think I would have the drive or the determination to say, okay, no, okay, thing, everything's going wrong. Where is the solution? How can I get to the next stage? And where was it that you grew up? So I grew up in Surrey, uh, Walton on Thames. And is that where, was it always based in that? Was your dad able to base the business in one place or was it a case of moving around at all or was that, it was always in that one place? Um, the businesses are all around in the local area, but um, I moved schools a lot. Um, so I, basically they tried to, they put me in private school um, from a very, very young age and I just really didn't enjoy it. Um, one of the reasons was, um, you're probably not going to believe it, but they make you stand up and say what your parents do. And at the time, I stood up and I said, oh, my dad's a mechanic. Hmm. Um, because that's how I knew him at that age. I didn't know the whole intricate, oh, he's a businessman and he owns this and that. But what he does every day is he works in the workshop. Um, so that's what I said. And I got laughed at. Hmm. And it, was very, it, was, it wasn't a very nice atmosphere at all. And... I don't know. I, I just didn't feel comfortable. And then I moved um, into quite a few private schools from a, an all girls to a co-ed, etc. But I just never it never really worked. I used to I used to try and get off school or I used to try and cry and not go to school. And eventually my mum let me pick my own school. And obviously being a child who was not uh, basically I wasn't happy with my mum. So I chose the worst school um, <laughs> and it was a state school. But I thrived in it and I made really good friends. And I think it's it's all about, it's not about the best education that you're getting. It's about how much you're willing to work. So why was that, do you think, that you weren't keen on those schools that you went to and, and wanted to move? I felt people were more real in the, the state school that I went to. And it wasn't just about money and how much you had. And whether you had the latest iPad or whatever it might be. And I, I think that's what changed my view. Because I think we all can achieve whatever we want to do. It doesn't matter what school you go to. So you felt in a way that at the, the private schools that it wasn't, yeah, the, the atmosphere wasn't, wasn't nice. And also it wasn't that conducive to... To, to really fulfilling your potential is that what you you're getting at yeah in 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 my in my my personal experience i mean it it worked really well for my sister so i can't i think everyone has their own um sort of comfort and for me it wasn't there and i did i didn't feel that happy there at all i mean the the, the teaching must it was amazing but if you can't excel in it and you're really unhappy uh, same similar in a work environment if you're unhappy you're never going to excel so what age were you when you then moved to the state school? Um, I was, well, so I moved a lot in primary, and then I think I was around sort of 12, 13. And did you instantly feel like that was the right place for you? I stay, yeah, I stayed there throughout the secondary. So it, it was, yeah, I, I, I mean, there was ups and downs, and I did face 
a bit of bullying, but I think everyone does, and I think it's all about overcoming that. Do you think that that experience has translated into any what you do now? You know, those cumulative experiences of moving from the different private schools to then finding where you wanted to be, does that... Do you think the, the, the bad and good experiences of that, do you think they have translated into how you operate now? I think they've shaped my experience, mainly because of what my, my father taught me again. He, every time I went to a new school, he would say, by the time I would leave, I needed to know the whole year. Uh, so I need to know everyone in my year. Hmm. And if I would come home every day, he'd ask me at, din- at the dinner table, who have you met today? Um, and if I hadn't met someone or I hadn't made a conscious effort to, to meet someone or say hello to someone new, he would not let me have pudding. So <laughs> it, it worked really well. Uh, I never understood it back then, but I, I understand it now because of networking. And now I'm not scared to just go up to someone on a train or in an, in, at an event and talk to them. And you really don't know who they know or what, how you can help each other. That's amazing. So he was kind of forcing you to learn the skills of networking and of, of being able to speak to anyone from a pretty early age. Yeah, and he said, you just never know and what, what, what people, whether you'll get on with them or not. He said, but you will never know until you ask. Were there other things that your dad or, or your mum got you to do when you were at school like that? Um, what other things? I would say... Mum taught me, she was very routine, um, so I think she helped me with the whole, um, every entrepreneur needs a routine, so you need to get up at a certain time, you need to study for this amount, and very time management, and learning how to sort of let go of things that I don't need to worry about. For example, I used to do invoicing and admin when I first started the business for a lot of hours, and um, they would say to me, why are you doing that? Could you not just pay someone um, to do that and then use your skills elsewhere um, to bring in more money to the business and grow it? And I was like, no, 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 I don't want to spend that. And then they were like, you're not, you're not doing what we taught you. You're not um, seeing what you're good at. And you're, you, instead, you're trying to wear every single hat in the business. So, yeah, the, the things like that, they taught me. Um, I'm not sure about other things. There's probably loads, but I, I just haven't... Um, understood them probably yet so you went then on to university uh, and just tell me again what where did you go to university what did you study and what was that experience like a university so I went to the University of Northampton um, I studied um, finance with investment uh, management uh, it was really fun I really enjoyed university I do wish I I do wish I went out more though um, I see uh, a lot of people in my team tell me about how they partied a lot more at university and I sort of wish I did um, because I didn't experience that as much. Why didn't you at the time? I thought it was really really important that I needed to get the grades I needed to um, I needed to excel and mum had that in my head that if I didn't it it, it would be a lot of cost for nothing um, so I sort of put my mind to it and, and and studied, really. But don't get me wrong, I did go out now and then, but just not as much as I would have liked to. Was it still an issue in terms of going out, in terms of the anaphylaxis at that point? Yes, a big thing, actually. Um, for example, one of the times uh, I went to a club and my friends thought it would be funny to get me Sambuca, 
I said I, I, knew, I knew I couldn't have it and I did explain this to them but they didn't realise how at the, it was in my first year and they didn't realise how bad anaphylaxis could be um, anyway they said it was all fine and I literally put it to my lips and I had an allergy um, and then an ambulance was called so what happened? Uh, I couldn't breathe at all. Uh, luckily, they managed to obviously get bring the allergy down, um, and I have an EpiPen as well. Right. That obviously so, helped. Yeah, go on. Sorry. Uh, yeah. So, I, but I don't believe in taking the EpiPen too much because there has been studies on it that it can um, damage damage your, obviously your some of your cells. So I try and not have the EpiPen as much as possible. And I've learned that if you go into an ice bath or you a really really cold shower and then go outside um, it, it can bring the allergy down like a shock treatment so what was the the plan at that stage in terms of where you wanted to go after you'd finished your degree um i wanted to go into banking um and i did i worked for when i finished university i went over and worked with china Tongyin in beijing how was that experience oh it was it was amazing um, it's completely different life, but you're sort of on the go the whole time. But it, it's just, I went out a lot then in Beijing. The, the city never, ever sleeps. Um, but I really enjoyed it. So what were you doing there? So I was a um, part of the finance analyst team. Um, and it was really fun sort of looking at different businesses, how to improve their systems, etc. Um, how to improve, improve growth. Also, um, they had Villanova and IBM accounts, so um, a lot of people were working on that as well. And what was the experience of Beijing like? It was, it was difficult because of the allergy. Um, they cook a lot of things in peanut oil. So for me, I had to carry a card around everywhere I went to say I couldn't have nuts. But at that stage, they didn't really understand what a nut allergy meant either. So, for example, luckily my boss was American-born, so he understood a bit more. But a lot of the people that we used to have to go out and have dinner with, they would not understand, and it would be called it would be called uh, losing face mm. if you didn't eat what they what they were eating or you didn't drink what they were drinking. So that that's the side I found a little bit difficult, but it was a bit of a culture culture shock. But we got round it. So were there some awkward situations where? As you say, in terms of losing face, where you said, no, I can't have that. A few, yes. But luckily, my boss was very, very understanding. So um, he sort of intervened a lot of the time when I did have a situation like that. Um, I wish that it could be more known off anaphylaxis. And I think that's the only way other people will understand it. And so why did you end up in Beijing then? Was that something that you wanted to do to go to China or was it more that you joined the company and then they sent you over there? No, so I wanted to go. Um, I had applied for it at uni. Our university had a link with a lot of different companies um, and I applied for it and I wasn't the... I, did, I really didn't think I was going to get get it, to be honest. Um, but I didn't even tell my parents at the time because I had... I didn't believe it but then I did get the, the job so I decided yes I really wanted to do it um, my parents were really really supportive about it though why were you so interested in that particular job 
I wanted to experience Beijing for one. I wanted to uh, travel, um, and also I really liked the firm. I wasn't sure about which firm I wanted to work for in the UK, such as like KPMG, etc. I wasn't sure where I wanted to go yet, so I thought it'd be good to get some experience as well out there. Um, and also, I got offered after that a job in Hong Kong, but I turned that one down. So yeah, it was it was a good experience to get outside my comfort zone and push my boundaries. Do you feel that that was a really valuable experience then to 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 push yourself like that? And because it seems counterintuitive you know, with the anaphylaxis particularly, to go somewhere where all the, there wouldn't necessarily be as understanding about that and, and about all the cooking in peanut oil. You know, was it was it a very rewarding experience to, to, to face those challenges? I would say yes. I think, for me, I really like to push myself out of my comfort zone because I believe that's where the sort of magic happens. I I know it's a, a lot of people with anaphylaxis are very, very scared and sceptical about doing certain things. But you have to live. And to, to live, you've got to experience. And for me, that made me grow up a lot because I had my parents constantly making meals for me, etc. Even at uni, they would always check what I was eating and make sure I was okay. But in Beijing, they wouldn't be able to do that. And it gave me the Sort of independence to say yes I can do this and yes I am going to um, and they, they can't do anything from halfway across the world. Do you think that these experiences you know you, when you said you were very young you had to eat your lunch by yourself and then similar thing in China do you think that those experiences have made you a very independent person? It's made me independent but it's also made me want to like the frustration has made me want to educate people more on it so that we, so that people like that and like me won't have to feel like that and won't have to sit separately. So at what stage did you start thinking about getting involved in creative nature? Um, so I started working in creative nature for a, a little bit, but they did lots of different things like incense, Buddha statues, everything they had and they sold at little festivals around the country and how did you get involved in that in the first place then uh my dad put me in he was like why don't you why don't you um go in can you do some due diligence can you have a look at the accounts for me because he had some money actually invested in there um and i said yeah sure I, i can do that i'll have a look see see what's going on with the numbers um and unfortunately i had to tell him that it was in huge losses and he's not going to get any of his money back out so was this uh, while you were still working, or was this after you have been working in China? Sort of. So I was still doing a bit of work, um, but I'd come back to the UK. And were you thinking at that point that you wanted to, to, to leave the company and start your own thing, or were you still quite happily working away? I was still quite happy, um, and I'd been offered a job in Hong Kong, so um, I was just debating on what I really wanted to do, and I... And I, I loved what I was doing. Um, so in, in that terms, I, I didn't really think I was going to come back and I was going to stay uh, working at Creative Nature. But after coming over, seeing what was happening, um, my dad posed to me, what about a management buyout? And I thought he meant, what about a management buyout for me to find someone or, um, if, for example, sell to the other people in the business? Um, but he didn't mean that. Huh. So just tell me, how old were you then? And um, 
yeah, what was the, just talk me through the process of when you looked at the accounts for your dad and then you went and spoke to your dad about those. Uh, so I was 22 at the time. So everything happened quite quickly. Um, so, because it's not, it wasn't very difficult to see that the business wasn't doing very, very well. Um, so I just, I went straight to him really and said, look, this is the situation. Um, and he came back to me saying, um, have you ever thought about what if you um, wanted to do your own product? And I said, yeah, but wouldn't it be easier just for me to start from scratch? And then he was saying, oh, yes, but it would be good. Use, like You could use the name, you could trademark it, and you could do whatever you want. Just think of it as your own, but you would have to obviously take on the debt. Um, and I was quite sceptical at the time, but in the end I did say yes. Um, because I saw a vision for a sort of creating a food brand and I thought the name would, would be great for that. So how much debt was the company in at that point? That was when it was in £56,000 losses. So how did you, as a 22-year-old, how daunting or otherwise was that? I didn't really know what I was doing, to be honest. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I, can't, I can't lie to you there. Literally, I didn't, I didn't know what I was doing. Um, and I sacked the whole team. So I was sitting in my office by myself. Um, and I wanted to cry at that point. And my dad said to me, look, you've, you've obviously taken this on. Now it's time to actually put some gears into motion. So I decided to um, ask um, Matthew, Matthew Ford. He, we used to work at Waitrose together when we were 16 years old. Um, like on che checkouts and stacking shelves. And I said to him, would you, would you like to um, come on board with me with the business um, and work for me, but basically for nothing, because the business has no money. Um, <laughs> and I sold him my vis vision and I sort of sugarcoated it because I was telling him all about these products that I'm going to do and I'm going to get it into the supermarkets, etc. And he, was, he, he believed me, which was great. <laughs> Um, and he said yes, and he left his job as a primary school teacher, and he came on board with me. And that's when we sort of started. How long had the company been going before you got involved then? Um, I think it had been going about three years. And so was it the original founders then that you sacked, effectively? Yes, yeah, so basically, because my, my dad had put uh, money into it, and then there were two other uh, people in the business um, and yeah, pretty much I said, we're like, I'm taking over and we got rid of everyone, all the management team. So how difficult or otherwise was that period of actually going through that process of saying, actually, I'm taking this on and I don't want you to be involved anymore? It was really, really difficult, to be honest. Um, and I had no clue. I, I had no clue about sort of like products and how to sign labeling off or how to um, for example, uh, we had like a, a organic certification. I had no clue on that. Um, trademarking, I found out that none of the, the, the trademarks had gone through. So I had to then uh, do a court case for the trademarks. Um, then, unfortunately, we had the website taken as one of the previous employees uh, bought it on their card. So they decided to take the website which wasn't the easiest of things. Um, but yeah, we had a lot of ups and downs, to be honest. Um, and that was, that was the beginning stage. 
and I needed to understand how to get the the business back into profitability so that meant launching new products and cutting back on things that we just didn't need and how did the people react to your plan that were already there not not the not the greatest i, I would say were there some difficult conversations yes quite a few difficult conversations um i had a consultant in to, to help me through through all of that so then yeah how did you then decide on what the business was going to be. You said it was involved in lots of different things at that time. How did you decide how you were going to focus it? Well, they did um, things like pumpkin seed oil as well, which also sort of gave me the idea for sort of foodie related. Um, I knew I always wanted to do food um, and it had to be free from because it had to cater for me. So that's pretty much where the idea came from. I started in the kitchen, literally mashing up lots of ingredients and obviously because I already had to eat that way I knew um, sort of how to make it a bit better Um, but yeah so we started in the kitchen um, and me Uh, the first batch went out it was like a 50 gram bar and it was awful (laughs) what was it supposed to be so, so they they were sort of like we were just testing so it was like a fruit bar there was a sublime seed bar and um a uh, sort of like a chocolatey one uh, but all from like no dairy or anything and we went out on Kingston High Street and sampled it and we even had some people spit it out <laughs> yeah I, I, <laughs> it wasn't the most motivational uh, way to start but um, you know we rendered the recipes for about 12 months um, and finally came up with some amazing ones um, and now we're the only ones to ever win two gold stars at the Great Taste Awards. And so, yeah, talk me through then how that process went from then <laughs> there's some customers or prospective customers spitting it out to actually coming up with a, a product that's now being sold, you know, in some of the biggest supermarkets. Yeah, so I, I think it's all about listening to your customer, understanding <laughs> what their needs are. If they don't like it, do you, no matter how much... Um, marketing you'll put on there it might sell it the first time around but it's not going to sell it the second so it was understanding why they didn't like the taste was it the texture was it the um was it the price point even for example because we started out with a price point of 168 matt actually wanted to start up with a price point of like three pounds because he wanted to make it an absolutely amazing bar but i said no one's going to buy it Mm. so yeah we we basically went back to the kitchen, kept going um, until we found something that really worked and that we really liked too. I think we were fed up of tasting bars though by the end of it. <laughs> How long did that take then before you, you think you got to uh, some bars that actually you thought, okay, this is it, this is what we're going to go with? Um, to be honest, it, it was constantly tweaking, so for about 12 months. Um, and then after that, it was tweaking again little things like the packaging um, uh, like the size and the price point where we finally got to a price point of 99p which worked really w- well but again with no added sugars syrups or sweeteners or any of the gluten dairy wheat or nuts um, and I think that was the the major thing because I was coming from the aspect of no we have to have it free from all these things and Matt and our nutritionists were coming from the aspect of yes it needs to be this high in carbs this high in protein and I was just like, no, but it has to be free from all these things for me. So that remained the key, though, that it had to be, you know, sort of gluten-free and various allergy 
protecting people from various allergies, that was still the key selling point, was it? Yeah, the key selling point is that it's free from that sort of a better for you snack. And so where did you do your first sales? Where did you actually sell the bars for the first time? Um, we sold in sort of little health shops um, at lots of sort of like little um, local market stores, shows, that sort, that sort of thing. Um, because we had the superfood lines and the snack bars at that point. Uh, so the superfoods you can make like smoothies in um, and add to your porridge, etc. And so then you were selling to these small shops. When did you first start looking into or start getting interest from the supermarkets? Well, that actually happened. So um, in 2014, uh, end of 2013, going into 2014, I was looking for investment at that point. Um, because I felt I, we, were, we were selling okay, we were in those small health shops, but I wanted to scale the business, hmm. and I didn't have the cash flow to do it, so I knew I would need investment. Um, however, we didn't get it. Um, so what we decided to do, we decided that we worked out if we were, could sell to a supermarket at a good enough margin, we'd be able to propel the business um, and grow it quite quickly. Um, so we went to a show called Natural and Organic Products Europe, and uh, I used my last bit of marketing spend on it. Um, and what what happened was uh, I told everyone to pitch each and every person they speak to like they were the next Tesco's or Sainsbury's. <laughs> um, my two of the staff were saying, "Well, what if we feel like they're wasting our time?" And I said to them, "Well, I'm sorry, but..." I think you need to spend time with every single one because it's really important we treat everyone equally. Um, and it's a good thing I did do that because um, we didn't know whether we met anyone at the time. But a week later, we got a call from the Tesco buyer who said, um, I saw you at the show, um, really loved your product, really loved your team. I think they thought we were a lot bigger than we were. Huh. But, um, yeah, she, she said, um, I didn't tell you then, but I am a Tesco buyer. They don't like to tell you because obviously people will bombard them if they, they know they are. Was it you that had spoken to them or was it someone else? It was me. It was me. Um, she reminded me of basically uh, she had a hangover and one of our products helped her. And she said, oh, wow, that actually works. And I think that's probably what swayed it a bit as well. And so then how long after, where was the show that you went to, the, the, the exhibition so that was in um, April of 2014. And where was it? Oh, uh, at at um, Olympia in London. Oh, okay. So it was in London. And so, um, yeah, so how long after that was the, the call, did the call from Tesco come? So that was a week later from the show. And so then I, I'm guessing then things must have escalated quite quickly from there. Yes, it went crazy. So what happened was... Um, she said, there is a problem, though. I need you, I want you to be um, delivered in three weeks' time to launch. Mm. And she said, I need you to commit to it. And I said, um, I said yes, obviously, because you say yes now and figure out how to do it later. <laughs> um, and then what happened was I ran out back to Matt because uh, we were in a tiny little warehouse at the time. And I said, we've got Tesco. Can we, like, can we start, like, sort of putting everything together? And he said, we can't. He's like, you need to call them back and tell them no. And I was going, how can I tell them no? I was like, this is going to propel our business. And he said, well, the, the, the packaging, the, pa uh, the manufacturing will take at least six weeks. 
for this sort of scale of order. And I said, no, we're going we're gonna to have to figure out a way. So we spent till sort of like, I don't know, if it was so late in the morning working out an Excel spreadsheet of how we could hand pack and label everything um, in three weeks. And we worked out if we could stay up till four in the morning every single day with our mums, dads, <laughs> sisters, boyfriends, everything. Um, we would uh, we would make it on time. And so did uh, how many people did you rope into that plan then? And, and were they all happy to get involved? Yeah, they actually came. They, I can't remember how many of us, because it was all sort of in between days, but there must have been about 10 of us in total, um, 10 or 11. Um, and my parents, who were split up, they actually came together and um, and packed with me. So it was it was nice. And so and was that, did you do that plan? You, you stayed up till four in the morning every night for three weeks? Yes, we did. We stuck to it. And uh, we managed to get it. So we got 10 800 kilogram pallets ready to go in the loading bay a few weeks later. And uh, there was a problem at the end of it as well. What was that? Basically, when the trucks came to pick up, they said, can you load onto the trucks? And we said, how? And we never thought we needed a forklift. <laughs> Something so simple, but yeah. <laughs> We, then I called the buyer and I said, can we, um, can we uh, send, can you send the trucks back with a tail lift? And she said, no. She said, you've committed and you've signed a contract and you need to deliver. So we ran down to the end of the road. Um, so we're in the middle of the industrial estate and said to a tile company, can we borrow your forklift trucks? And they said, yes, which was really, really nice. But they said, there's another problem. We can't drive them on the road to get to you. So we were like, well, what do we do? Um, and they gave us an idea to put it on a tiny little pump truck. I don't know if anyone knows what this is, but it's like a little, like, uh, sort of a trolley that you pull a pallet from literally A to B. It, it shouldn't be used for long distances. Um, we loaded them up on there, each one, and I got Matt to pull them down the road. <laughs> and the road had to shut down. The police were called. Really? Um, Yep, it was absolutely. I've got some pictures. I'd love to share them with you at some point. Yeah, please do. It was. Um, I was taking pictures as we were literally probably about to get invested, but um, we got it. We got it on the trucks, and we we managed to launch into store. The it took two days to get in, and on the second day we ran into store, and we bought the product. So how many units? How many bars was that that you actually delivered to Tesco at that point? It was lots of different SKUs. Um, I can't remember. It was thousands and thousands. Um, yeah, I can't remember how many exactly of the time. SKUs, is, that's the individual sort of product ID, isn't it? Oh, uh, yeah, sorry. So that's like sort of each individual product. So I think we had about eight go into store. Okay, so thousands of bars that you packed overnight. So what was that like that first day when you went into Tesco and you just bought, you bought the first, uh, your product for the first time in, in a major supermarket? Well, the biggest supermarket. It was amazing. It was absolutely incredible, to be honest. It was, it was worth every little bit of packing and the problems that we faced. And we still have that receipt. It was just so amazing to have it. But then, presumably, you know, those big supermarkets—they don't just want one order. They want, they want. They, you need to commit to several orders. So, presumably, you had then to figure out how to deliver the next order in a more sort of sustainable way. Yeah, so but what we had done is we, um, I'd already put, so while we were doing all the packing, I'd put stuff in place um, to scale up manufacturing. And, and after, the, after that initial order, 
it, we were able to use manufacturing and, and it all worked out fine. And how often were you then delivering to Tesco? Was it a sort of every couple of weeks thing or was it? Yes, it was every week. Um, each, uh, for the first sort of month it wasn't because that was the sort of pipe fill. Um, so that was the big order. And then after a month, then they would order every week. I, I was really interested to uh, hear you say that, you know, that you say yes now and figure it out later. Is that something that you have always thought was the way to do it? Is that something that the, your dad taught you? Or is, where does that come from, that, that idea that you, you say yes now and figure out how you're going to do it later? I think it's the opportunity. I always find that if you, if you say no, you're always going to regret it. And I... I don't believe in, I, I don't want to ever regret anything. Um, I do believe that you do need to have some sort of calculated um, response to it. So you need to figure out a solution because you don't want to promise something and then not deliver. So, um, but there is always a solution. I do believe in that. So my dad says it's like jumping off the cliff and building the airplane on the way down. I'm sure he's got that from someone, but yeah, it's it's that that sort of thing, isn't it? You you do build it before you hit that ground, and and that's what what every entrepreneur I think has done. Probably Branson, Richard Reed, all my amazing mentors, they've all had problems but overcome them by just going ahead and doing it. You mentioned some of your mentors there, Richard Branson with Virgin, obviously, and Richard Reed, Innocent uh, Drinks, isn't he? I mean, who else are the other people that have inspired you? Um, there's been so many along the way. So there's Ed Josie Smith. He's an absolutely incredible, like serial entrepreneur, like has multiple businesses, um, marketing strategies as well. Um, he he he's just done it all from scratch as well, not had any help. Uh, people like Eric Ho, who's founder of like Yo Yo Noodles, um, a big franchise chain. Um, various various people, Kanye King from Mobo, um, who, who founded Mobo, but just different people along the way that I've met and entrepreneurs that have sort of inspired me. I call them my my top thirty three percent. Okay, why why is that? So I believe that if you surround yourself with people who are better than you, you're only going to get better. I'd rather be in a room full of um, people smarter than me so that I can learn from them rather than be rather than be the smartest person in the room um, because I feel that they can help you get to the next level in your business you can learn new strategies and if they don't have to even be in the same industry as you I've learned things from people in logistics and transport to supply chain demand and it's it's crazy what I've learned from different businesses um, so I, I believe I don't believe in getting rid of all your friends don't get me wrong <laughs> But I do believe in trying to strive to build yourself up and um, personal development is so important. What are the key things then that you think you've taken from some of these people? Are there key sort of lessons that you now apply all the time that you've taken directly from any of these people? Um, what would I say? Uh, so many I've learned along the, along the way. I think... The main thing is keep going. Like you're going to face negativity a, a lot of the time through your throughout your business life, um, whether it be from people who are jealous or whether it be from people who just don't believe that you can do it. But you need to push that aside and have sort of a goal. There's also things like I don't know if you've ever heard of the business canvas. No, I haven't heard of that. Uh, so I we I don't believe in. Um, 
uh, 40-page business plans. I mean, I learned this from uh, one of my mentors from Goldman Sachs, um, Mark Hart. He He's absolutely incredible lecturer. And he did the one-page business plan, which is by Alex Osterwalder. And it's a way to sort of map out your business with the key partners, the channels, the cost revenue, all on one page. And you can see exactly how each thing fits into another and where your strengths are, where your weaknesses are. And it's really easy to do with your team. Um, and you can constantly pivot and understand new areas you can get into. You mentioned there you had a mentor at Goldman Sachs. How did that come about? So I applied to um, go on this course with Goldman Sachs called um, Goldman Sachs 10,000 Small Businesses. And it's a, basically it's like a mini MBA um, where, you, where you get put on a, a firm, like a sort of a, what do I call it, a cohort of 40 people. Um, and that's how many they accept. And you go through this course together and it, it takes about five months. And you have residentials where you're all together and it's like a mastermind and you learn lots of different business strategies and you they, they basically pick apart your business and they become your non-exec directors, which is the board you could never afford pretty much. Right. Um, and it was fantastic for me because I learned so much. It's actually been better than my university degree because I learned so much more in terms of practical business. Uh, to get on the course, yes, it, you'd have to go through quite a few interviews and various other things. But they take sort of the only the top percent of businesses, the high growth ones. So you have to prove you've been growing at a high growth rate for three consecutive years. Um, and they have to believe that you'll be able to grow at 90 percent the year after you take the course. So how long was that course? Or is it an ongoing thing? I know. So I finished that in um, l- last year um, and we graduated from Oxford in December. So how long was the course when you actually did it? Five months in total, and then you've got the extra bits for sort of like the online webinars. So you were still able, obviously, to run the business while you were doing it. It was, it was a, some, an add-on to, to what you were doing. That was it. You, you had to prove that you had a team in place so that you'd be able to take yourself out of the business and work on the business. So you mentioned also just before that, um, you know, you've got to deal with people who might be jealous or people who say you can't do it. Have there been examples of that over the, the time that you've you've run the business? Um, yeah, unfortunately, I have. Um, I don't want to obviously name names because it's, it's, it's not my it's not really my thing. No, um, but, um, yeah, unfortunately, I had a lot of people that didn't believe in it and then come back after Dragon's Den for example and been like oh wow can I get in contact now and it'd be great to do something which it's not nice to have it's it's just I think you've got to sort of push that aside though um and just carry on and how have you dealt with that um how have I, done? I would say I've learnt a lot during from school to to now in terms of who my friends are and who I can trust. Um, and I think it's important to be open with them about it, um, tell them exactly how you feel. I've lost a lot of friends along the way. An entrepreneur's journey sometimes is very lonely. Um, and it's, that's why it's so important to surround yourself with other entrepreneurs that understand what you're going through. So why do you think that is, that you've you know, lost some friends along the way, as you, as you describe it? I've lost friends because it's 
because I can't go out. Like, for example, missing a friend's engagement or missing their birthdays because I've got to work or they don't really understand. And, for example, if they see you going out to a networking event, they think that's not work. But it is work. So um, there's just a it's sort of communication breakdown. And I think you have to put a lot of work into keeping your friends. And unfortunately, I couldn't keep up with both. So really, the, the, the all-consuming nature of, of running the business is... Yeah, sacrifices have to be made. Yes, yeah, they do. And I think people who, who go, are asked going into startups, they understand that or they, they need to understand that because otherwise the business suffers as, as, as much as the person does. So at that stage then when you got the Tesco contract, uh, presumably then the uh, interest in investing in the company increased. Is that right? Uh, when sorry, I, I didn't get the last. So one. when you got the Tesco contract, um, was that was that before? Had you received more investment at that point, or were you then looking for more investment after that? We didn't receive any investment, um, so we we carried on, um, and with the Tesco's contract, we funded the other side of the business. Uh, yes, the investors that I spoke to and that had called me silly and that my financial forecasts were ridiculous etc um they actually came back to me and wanted to buy the business which was interesting hmm. uh, but i said no at that point because I, I, I still wanted to grow it um uh, after that we carried on going and um we didn't need the investment at that point so i kept kept growing it up until um last year where we went on dragon's den yeah so tell me about that so at that point was tesco your biggest, the, the main customer, or were you, were you involved in the other supermarkets then as well? Uh, what, when we went on Dragon's Den? Yeah. Um, yeah, so we had, so we had, um, who do we have? We had Asda, TK Maxx, Ocado um, at the time, um, and we were about to launch in Sainsbury's and Co-op, and we had an email saying that we were, but not an order yet. So this was what was so frustrating, so we went on Dragon's Den and we pitched and they obviously said, yes, but that's not definite, that you can't prove that that will definitely happen. And we were like, yes, but it's an email, it's a confirmation. Um, and they said, no, we can't base the valuation on that. So unfortunately, this is what we'd, we'd give as of now. So let's just rewind slightly. Why did you decide to go on Dragon's Den in the first place? Uh, well, they actually asked us quite a few times. And I oh, said... Really? Yeah, um, I, I didn't really want to go on. I, I, I was very scared, to be honest. In, in, like, it, it is quite nerve-wracking because you'll have your business going out to millions of viewers and they could make or break your business if they, if they want to or if, if they feel like the product is, hasn't got legs. So I was very, very worried about that. But what made me say yes in the end was, first of all, we were in, obviously, supermarkets. We had rate of sale. Uh, we had proof of concept that it was selling. Uh, we had a good social media following. Um, and people were able to buy it in store at that point. So if everything did go wrong and they hated it and we didn't get any offers, at least people would know about it and see it. And I could create um, sort of a buzz around that and 
and people would go into store and buy it. So that's why I said yes in the end. So you said you were scared beforehand. Was it was it a scary experience? Oh my gosh, yes, it was scary. <laughs> but I think it's it's a good scary. It's it makes you grow as an entrepreneur, and I would recommend it, Dragonstone to everyone. Um, it's not something I would want to go through again. Don't get me wrong, <laughs> but it it is something that will help you grow and help you understand. A normal investment meeting is never going to be like that but it will push you so far out of your comfort zone that you learn things you never knew about yourself. What was it that scared you most? Was it the, the fact that it was on national television or was it the actual dragons themselves or, or what, what was it? It's the situation where you sort of, you have so many cameras around you, but you, you've never seen the dragons. So whereas with a normal investor, you'd normally have emailed them or you'd have spoken to them, whereas you have no contact. So the situation is suddenly you're there and you're standing there and you, you don't know what they're going to be like. Um, so, yeah, that scared me. And obviously having when you're going to go on Dragon's Den, you've, you've probably done your research and watched a lot of other um, clips. And just seeing, like, for example, Peter Jones ripping into someone, that kind of scared me. <laughs> Was he the one that you were most sort of um, worried about? Um. Yes, him and Deb were, were, were our most were our biggest worry. Um, obviously, when we went on, they had a new the two new dragons, so we never had really seen them respond to anyone before. Um, and Tuka's normally okay, so we weren't too worried about him. Who were the two new dragons? I can't remember now. Uh, Ted Lelvani, uh, um, the CEO of Vitabiotics, and Jenny, um, who is. Uh, she does all the ATM cash machines. Jenny Campbell, isn't it? Jenny Campbell, yeah. So you actually got investment, though. Well, you the promise of investment, didn't you, um, from Deborah Meaden? Yes, we did, yeah. So what was that like when that whole negotiation process and then the, you know, when, they actually, when she made you an offer, was it kind of a huge relief at that point? Or was then, well, how did you feel when she made you the offer? Um... It was a, it was such an amazing feeling because we had such obviously good comments from people like Ted and Tuka etc. But it was still that issue about the co-op and Sainsbury's hadn't been like we hadn't gone in yet. So yeah, when she made the offer, she was the one we we wanted because she has a lot of connections in the health industry. So it felt it sort of was a bit of a shock. Um, we wanted it and we knew we could get an offer, but it's just when it actually happens, you're like, wow, okay, they're actually saying yes. <laughs> but you, in the end, you didn't, uh, it didn't go through with it, did you? No, we didn't. We Why was that? Uh, because uh, three weeks later, after we filmed, we launched into Sainsbury's and Co-op. So the valuation that we had given was, was the right one and that's not the, what we got which was, it, it was sad because obviously we did really want to work with her, but we, it, for, for what we were getting, what the money we were getting for the percentage we were giving away was just not uh, right. It was not worth it. So her value, the valuation that the offer was based on was that you weren't yet in Sainsbury's old co-op, but actually you, you were, so then the value, your valuation, much higher, was the true valuation. So what, how did that pan out then when you actually turned around and said actually... Or did you try and renegotiate it? No, you can't really re renegotiate what's 
um, because obviously you've accepted the offer um, in the den, so it, it's difficult to to do that. But what we did, well, we did speak to Deborah and her team, and she was she was really nice, and she wished us really really well, and she said she could see where we were going places and understood. So it was fantastic. So did she say she understood your reasoning? Yeah, they they said completely understand, uh, which was great, and it was it was nice to. It, it ended on such a good note. And so when you look back on that experience, what did you take from it personally? You know, what, what did you learn from that experience? Oh, what did I learn? I learned to always be prepared for any question, whether it be in your personal life or business. Um, make sure you, you understand every aspect. Um, and maybe not wear heels when you're going to be in there. <laughs> Why not? Because you're standing for so long. <laughs> <laughs> How long were you standing for? Oh, I think two hours. Oh, really? Because we only see a sort of, you know, six, seven minute version, don't we? Yeah, I think you guys saw 16 minutes of us. 16, okay. So that's pretty long anyway. But two hours you were standing there with, with while they interrogated you. Yeah, so I would maybe say wear trainers. <laughs> <laughs> that's good advice. And did it? Uh, did it give the brand awareness that you hoped it would? It was fantastic. I, I, didn't, I couldn't believe how well we did after the show. Um, people always say, oh, yeah, you're going to sell out, etc. But we, we did sell out in Sainsbury's and co-op, and it, we didn't have enough stock. We were out of stock for a month in Sainsbury's. So what, sort of, what was the sort of percentage increase in sales you know, the following day or the following week after that appearance? Um, I'm not sure entirely, but if you imagine sort of like five, six pallets of stock just keep going out. <laughs> so it was a lot. Yeah. It, it, and then we got on a lot of different sort of, um, we got a lot of press off the back of it. So it was a fantastic platform to be on. And has that maintained that set, those sales or did it, was it a peak and then it dropped off again? Uh, it did peak. It, it really did spike. Um, but we sort of maintained and um, carried on going because after that I was a judge on Britain's Next Top Model. So that then aired um, at the end of the year. So uh, we saw another peak, so it carried on going, the sales. Tell me about that experience. How did you get involved in that? Uh, I, met a, I met the producer at an event um, and I asked, how could I get Creative Nature involved in the... Um, in Britain's Next Top Model, and we sort of come up, came up with this idea um, for a commercial, and then um, with my social media following, etc., um, it would be good for me to become a guest judge, and yeah, we went from there. So was that a programme that you already watched? I didn't really watch it, if, I, if I'm completely honest. Um, I did watch America's Next Top Model, so it is very, very similar. And so were you then, obviously, you know, you'd found the, the Dragon's Den TV experience a bit scary, but were you a bit more confident going into being a judge? Yes, it was, and, and it was so, it was very different, because um, you have sort of a couple of days of filming, and things can be edited and changed, and you can see that, whereas with, um, obviously, Dragon's Den, you don't know how it's going to come out, and you don't know how, how you're going to be portrayed, I guess. Yeah. So did you see another spike in sales then, you said, after that not next top model? We, we did, uh, especially in the bars, because the commercial was all about the bars. And 
Are they, is that something you want to do more of, those sort of, you know, TV, entertainment, media appearances? Yeah, I, re- I really want to get more into that, um, as I do a lot of talks now around the country, and I also mentor for Virgin Startup. So not only talks on sort of motivational for, for women and inspiring, but also things on sort of healthy eating, um, people who suffer from anaphylaxis, getting the message out there, and also anxiety, because it, it's weird. Like I faced a lot of sort of, I suffer from anxiety, but it, you wouldn't see that because I've been on things like Dragon's Den and other things, but it's sort of something that's there in the background that you learn to live with. Is that something, that anxiety, is that something you've experienced from a, an early age? Well, no, actually. I only uh, sort of experienced it in the last few couple of years, actually, the more and more sort of speaking events I've done, which is odd. Um, but, yeah, they, they did say when I was younger, um, having the anaphylaxis would probably cause anxiety. But I never, I never really had it. And I think that's because my parents sort of pushed me outside my comfort zone and tried to ensure that I would try everything. How does that manifest itself? You say it's just been the last couple of years. How does that actually yeah, manifest itself and, and when? To be honest, I think it's social media. Um, I'm not blaming it completely. I'm just saying, you, you know when you go on Instagram and you see all these perfect pictures um, of everyone's lives and you try and live up to that, but every day really isn't perfect and there's a lot of challenges and you don't look great in the morning and but you see all these people around you and you you think oh wow they're doing so much better than me and now I constantly say to other people who are feeling this I say it's not real for one and secondly you might be comparing their end game to your start so don't do that so yeah I, I think social media is part of it definitely and is it something then that's a constant or is it just before you're going on stage or is it you know how does it no see I don't sometimes it's not even when I'm going on stage at all it's sometimes it's at home um before I go to bed and I'll be really stressed and I'll be really worried about the next day or something something completely trivial and something that won't even really matter to anyone else but it matters to me so yeah, I, I, I don't think you can, I, I can say it's a trigger like every time I go and do a talk or a TV show because it, it really doesn't happen like that. And so how do you deal with it when it does come up? I try and sort of relax myself. Um, I try and do, it, it sounds probably not relaxing to you, but I do a Zumba <laughs> class. Okay. Um, and for me, that's relaxation because I'm, I'm sort of unwinding um, I'm not thinking about anything else but that class and those moves and the music and that's it. And it sort of unwinds me from the situation that I am thinking about. Do you think that's because it's very sort of physical and you have to be in the moment for that kind of thing? I think it stems from loving dance. And I've always felt happiest when I've been dancing. And Zumba is a sort of a form of that. So I, I assume that that's my sort of happy place, my comfort zone. And is that then, the dancing, is that something that you feel is a, yeah, something that you want to carry on and that can help, and can help you in your, in your life, in, in, you know, day to day? 
I believe that. I believe that everyone should have something or some sort of physical activity that they go to um, to get you up, to get your sort of endorphins going, your your body pumped up. It, it makes you want to get up and go. Um, and if you don't, I, I feel it's sort of you're just, I, I don't know, even anything. You, you can literally go for a walk and it'll make you feel better. Just tell me a bit as well about, I know that re- rewinding slightly, but it's obviously still the case today that, um, you know, you run the business with Matt um, and you have done from the start. Just tell me how important has that been that it's been the sort of two of you running it together effectively or, or you know, you've, you've had that support from day one um, and you've had that continued support. How important has that been in terms of growing the business rather than it being just by yourself? I think that's so important. It it's, it's it's sort of like your sounding board in a way. Um, your motivation when you're really really down and you can just pick each other up. Um, also to bounce ideas against uh, off each other um, and having someone that's different to you. So for example, I I'm really good with numbers, but Matt hates them. Um, yet he's so creative and sometimes. Sometimes I'm really creative and then other times I struggle with it. Mm. So it, we can really bounce ideas off each other. He comes from the sort of male perspective. I come from the female perspective. So with sort of products, I know we're 80% women, but I, I try and get a lot of our um, bars very gender neutral so that he can understand what, why would a guy pick it up, why would a girl pick it up, etc. Have there ever been any times when you've, really disagreed about the way forward oh lots of times (laughs) lots of times with things silly things like packaging but that are so important in the long run um which when you when we disagree what we tend to do is we find a solution and we go out to the market the consumer and then you can't argue with the consumer so no matter what we think if we wanted to launch i don't know for example our salted caramel bar Matt was like, oh, should we launch Salted Caramel Bar? I was like, yes, I love, like, I think that's flavoured on trend, etc. We went out to the public to see what they thought. And that's what you go with. And I think that that's the thing. You need to be able to be open to understand the other person's opinions. And then you need a bigger sort of uh, amount of data to collect to be able to see which result you're going to take. Do you think it would have been a very different experience if you'd done it by yourself, if you like? I think it would have been a lot harder and I think that I would still have employed someone else um, to be alongside because it is difficult um, with just two people, let alone one. Um, I think it would maybe we wouldn't have grown as fast or maybe I would have taken investment earlier on. I, I'm, I'm not sure really. Just one other thing, just to rewind slightly. You mentioned the mentoring that you're involved in now. Uh, just tell me a bit about that. And, and what do you get out of that? You know, what, what do you enjoy most about mentoring other entrepreneurs? Uh, what do I, do? I enjoy the progress, seeing something go from concept on a piece of paper on a napkin to a full-blown product prototype to then being launched in store. I, I, I love that. I love the feeling of being part of something of change, seeing the entrepreneur grow as as a person from when they were very unsure to 
when they're like 100% yes we're going for this. And how did you get involved in the mentoring in the first place? I was asked by Virgin to do it. Um, I think they came across my profile on Twitter or at, on, at one of the events I, I speak at. And that you mentioned those, the speaking events. Is that something that you have sought out doing? Is that something that you really wanted to do? Or is that, again, something that sort of you've been asked to do and you've had to, to deal with it? You mentioned the anxiety uh, partly around that. But, you know, is, is the speaking something that you really wanted to do before you started doing it? No, not at all. If you go, if you ask my teachers, um, they, I was absolutely terrified of being on stage unless it was like for dance. I wouldn't speak at all. Um, so yeah, I had a bit of an issue there. And the first time I ever did a speaking event was the business show in London. I don't know if you know it. Um, and they put me on as a keynote speaker. If, I don't know how they found me. They, they must have found me. I think they said they've heard of my story from somewhere. Hmm. Um, and they put me on as a keynote speaker straight after James Kahn. And I was literally, that day, I went there and I said to Matt, because I was like, Matt, you have to come with me because I'm, I'm very scared. Um, and I puked literally just before I went on. And after I puked, though, I was still really scared. But as soon as I said the first sentence, I was fine. How many people were in the audience? Well, that was the other thing. I was really worried that no one was going to be there <laughs> because it was my first talk. So I never, like, I hadn't promoted it or anything. So, and we had a queue around the whole um, uh, theatre of people that didn't, couldn't come in, couldn't get in, which mm. was fantastic. It was such a fantastic response. I don't know, it would have been over like three, three, four hundred probably. That's pretty impressive for your first speaking, uh, first go at speaking, that kind of audience. Was it then, did you, had you scripted it all or were you just going out there and talking? No, I scripted it. <laughs> they, they asked me to talk and I, I didn't, I was so scared. So I made sure I had, I, I memorized everything and it, I did all slides, etc. had a video. Um, I, I, I didn't want to get anything wrong. Now, I'm more, I'm more sort of relaxed and I, I'll just go on and I'll talk, I'll do interviews, etc. But I think that's because I'm used to it now, whereas when I first started, I had no clue. Plus, I got a lot of hate on Twitter afterwards. Why do you think that was? Oh, I got a hate because they couldn't get into the theatre. Oh, I see, right. People couldn't see you. Yeah, and then they got really angry and they said, it's unfair, we've come all this way and we didn't get to see your talk and... I was like, well, that's not my fault, really. Why do you think they blamed you for that? I don't know. I guess they couldn't blame the organiser, or they, they just blamed me. So did, did you deal with the people? Did you speak, respond to the people, or did you just ignore it? Um, I responded a few times, but then it was sort of getting worse. So it was best to take, like, and not respond at all, um, which is what I did. Um, the business show did respond, though, to them, which was good. Good. I mean, do you, you mentioned that, you know, social media, you mentioned it a couple of times. Do you, how do you deal with social media? I mean, do you feel it's a, clearly it's a way of promoting you and, and the product, but do you feel it's a positive thing for you to be doing social media? I do. I do believe in technology and I do believe in social media, but I also believe there is bad areas of it as well. 
Um, and I think that comes down to being human. Uh, you can't you can't control everyone and what everyone says. And if you do do that, then we take away our freedom of speech. So it's very hard to regulate the social media. For example, after Dragon's Den, you get people people who just I don't understand why they need to say any any comments of how you look and what colour your hair is. We really just don't need to say those things, but people do. So I think that can cause a bit of bit of problems. But if you are on social media, you do need to learn to become a bit thick-skinned because everyone has an opinion out there, and not everyone's going to like you. But as long as you know that what you're saying is true and and you believe in it, then keep going. They're very wise words. Um, I'd like to, to finish our interview uh, by asking you three questions that I'm asking everybody who I'm speaking to for the podcast. Um, so the first question is, do you have uh, like a routine or a set of circumstances that you do on a daily basis to get yourself in the right frame of mind to be at your most productive? So is there a set of things that you do in the morning or in the evening or in the daytime or where you need to be? What is it that enables you to be your most productive? I'm most productive probably when I do um, a Zumba class in the morning. Uh, that always gets me up for the day. I think also not pressing snooze on your phone really helps. So if you sort of get up with your alarm and you practice that for, I think it takes around three weeks to get into an exact that you will wake up with it. Um, and then finally, making sure you have something to eat, anything in the morning, sort of half a banana, literally anything. It will kickstart your metabolism, so it will keep you going um, for the day. Okay. Second question. When you look back at everything that you've done, both in terms of, it can be school or your job in Beijing or your, the company, what is the thing that you're sort of, when you look back, you're sort of most proud of? The one thing that you did, it didn't have to be, it doesn't have to be about money or about how much money you made from it or how big it was, but is there a, an event that you, you look back on and you, and you think, yeah, that was, that was pretty special? That's hard to choose. I guess it was seeing the product, like the baking mixes in store in Sainsbury's and someone buying it. And going, oh, I really like this product. That, it's just, it's a feeling you can't, like, they don't know who you are at all. And they don't, they've never seen you, I guess. Um, and they're just an, an average person and they pick up your product and they really enjoy it. And you, you see that and it just, it just makes you believe in what you do. And was that just by chance you were in a Sainsbury's one day and you saw that? Yeah. Um, it's happened at um, Sourced Market as well um, with our bars, and I've I've been having a really bad day, and they I've seen someone go, oh my god, I love those bars, I have to buy one with their friends, and I'm like, yes, that has just made my day. Brilliant. And the final question, and this can be anything, so like a could be a book or music or uh, you know box set that you're watching or anything. What is it that you're really excited about? right now or, or what you're consuming in terms of creative work you know what is it that you're reading or listening to or, or watching at the moment oh lots of different things so i would say um tim ferris for our work week 
is really good. I try and listen to that when I can. Um, that's always a good podcast. Um, and then in terms of what I'm watching, probably not what everyone watches. I, I really like The Crown. Um, I really like history um, and learning what's happened in the, uh, in the past. So those are the two things I'm at, at the moment I'm particularly watching. And then I'm having to read, which is actually a really good read, Alison Edgar's sales training book. Uh, my whole team is reading it at the moment. Okay, what's that book called? Um, it's Alison Edgar sales training. It's a pick. It's um, it's really good for sort of if you're starting out, uh, um, and you need to learn sort of the behavioural techniques um to do sales. For example, there's like colours red, blue, green, and yellow, and each person has a different colour and how to react to them. Um, it really really works. Great stuff. Julianne, thank you very much uh, for coming on the podcast. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. Mm-hmm.